Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. I'm Michelle Equator, and a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with Professor Harry Holzer to talk about welfare and immigration policy and their impact on low-income workers. Professor Holzer teaches poverty and the social safety net at the McCord School of Public Policy and is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. His work focuses on low-income workers in the labor market. He previously served as the chief economist for the U.S. Department of Labor under President Bill Clinton. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Good morning, Professor Holzer. Good morning. Uh, my name is Mitchell Quater, GPPR interviewer. And today we're hosting Professor Holzer uh, to talk about uh, several policy areas. Primarily we'll be focusing on welfare policy, labor market economics, and immigration policies. First, I'd like to hear more about your background, how you got into welfare and labor market economics. Yeah, what sparked your interest in this specific policy area? I, I think I developed an interest in economics uh, and especially employment issues as far back as high school. I actually I grew up as the son of immigrants, uh, Polish Holocaust survivors. I think I was interested in social justice and social welfare issues. Uh, for a long time back, but at the same time, uh, I always was drawn to economics uh, because it's very practical. I like the view that everything you might do might have a cost as well mm. as a benefit. Right. Uh, I like the view that we do a lot of things that we think might be positive and they have unintended consequences, at least potentially. Yeah. So I, I, I like the way economists think. I like to base policy on evidence mm. uh, and, and all of that is part of the reason I went into this field. Great. And you, you started as, as an academic, starting as a professor, and then you drifted also uh, into policy and have worked in one of the administrations. That's correct. So I got my PhD in economics at Harvard in 1983. Mm. Uh, I immediately went and became uh, a professor of economics uh, at Michigan State University. Did that for about 15 years. Then I was hired uh, to be uh, in the Clinton administration as chief economist of the Labor Department. Mm. While I was there, uh, I got recruited by what is now the McCourt School of Public Policy here at Georgetown. And my work over time has drifted more and more uh, in a policy-oriented direction. I'd like to start with the first uh, question, which is a very debatable topic in the past few years specifically, and that is the impact of uh, immigrant workers on uh, labor markets. Uh, specifically, I want to start with the 1980s when there was a, a large flow of Latino immigrants and the impact that such flow had on native workers, specifically the fact that immigrant workers, uh, especially unskilled workers, might have a low reservation wage compared to native workers. And I would like you also to define what is a reservation wage for our listeners and uh, yeah, and it's, it's impact, the impact of such a large flow on uh, unskilled native workers. Okay, well, uh, the definition of a reservation wage is the lowest wage that an individual will accept uh, in the labor market uh, before taking a job. Um, and there is good reason to believe that immigrants, uh, especially immigrants that come without much formal education, have lower reservation wages. They're willing to work for less uh, because uh, even if they get paid less than the minimum wage, uh, that still compares very favorably with what they would have earned in their native country, so it feels good to them. Their children, by the way, likely will not feel that way, mm. you know, growing up with higher expectations 
in, in, in an American society. But so the immigrants do feel that way. Uh, and, and there is some evidence that in certain key sectors of the economy, and of course it also varies by region, mm. that immigrants uh, have moved very heavily into some sectors. Uh, when they have done that, the, the presence of less educated native-born Americans has declined. Mm. Uh, here I'm thinking about some parts of manufacturing, often non-durable, sure. the lower wage industries. Mm. I'm thinking about construction, mm. residential construction primarily, uh, very heavily on, on the East Coast, yeah. even where I live. Uh, I'm also thinking about certain parts of the service sector, mm. uh, everything from, from lawn maintenance, uh, Fast food. Uh, fast food to some extent, but, but also home care, elder care, et cetera. Mm. Um, and, and especially when these immigrants are undocumented, mm. they often get paid in cash. Sure. Uh, and then the employer doesn't have to worry about their paying taxes. Right. Uh, and that makes potentially the wages even lower. Right. They um, also and, have a less bargaining power. Within. Well, they have less, yeah. but they're happy to get those right. jobs. And, 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 then, and then in those circumstances, employers often come to believe that the immigrants are more trustworthy, more reliable than mm -hmm. native board. So even if the native born workers were willing to still try to work in those sectors, the employers right. are less inclined to hire them. Mm -hmm. Now, the, then the question is, what is the evidence, rigorous yeah. research evidence? And it's a little bit unfortunate, this often happens in economics, that mm -hmm. you have very credible studies that go in both directions sure. on this. There's a body of literature, uh, which these days is associated with Professor David Card of Berkeley, mm -hmm. looking across metro areas, comparing those that have a lot of immigrants to those that have no few, and he finds very little evidence of any negative effects mm. on the wages of native-born workers. Mm. Now, there's another body of evidence associated with George Borjas, a professor at Harvard, mm. and some of his colleagues there, using a very different methodology, not comparing across areas, looking over time across age and education demographic groups, and, and he does find more evidence of negative impacts. Uh, I've looked at both sets of studies. My own view is that the card estimates are biased in the direction of zero. Mm -hmm. Borja's numbers might be biased in, in a high direction. So I come out somewhere in between, uh, that there is likely a negative effect, likely modest or moderate in size. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, a negative effect is a negative effect. And, and I think the other thing that's very important to this conversation is that we're talking about native-born, less educated Americans, especially mm. men, mm. who have been hurt by so many developments mm. in the economy. Sure. And I can think of five or six things off the top of my head that probably hurt them more than immigration. They tend to blame imports and immigrants right. disproportionately. But I, I still have at least a little bit of sympathy for their case. I don't think we can say, well, it's okay, it's just a small effect. Um, even though I, I do think on net, immigration is good for the U.S. economy, yeah. but my own view is that the highly educated, highly skilled immigrants, or the ones that target particular high demand sectors, right. they generate more benefits to the economy sure. than those who compete more on the low end. And so I would be sympathetic to an immigration policy that shifted at least a little bit more in that direction. Sure. You've mentioned other factors that have affected uh, native unskilled workers. Are, are you thinking about things like uh, outsourcing, uh, the decline of union memberships? Yes, yeah, so I, I, I can list them. Number one, right. automation and technology. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, uh, international forces that include international trade, sure. imports, as well as offshoring, uh, mm -hmm. things of that nature. Uh, number three, the decline of unions. Number four, the decline of the federal minimum wage mm -hmm. relative to other wages in the economy. Mm. Uh, so, so that's four or five things right there that I think are large, that are likely more of an effect mm. than immigration. Interesting. 
And, and, and what I've argued in my last paper yeah. on immigration, I've argued that we should have immigration reform and it should tilt the scales a little more towards highly skilled immigrants, but it should be tied to an agenda to help all less educated Americans uh, improve their, their earnings and their income status. Moving from labor market policies and immigration more towards welfare policies, we'd like to chat a little bit about the bell curve, define the bell curve, and what are its policy implications on welfare policy since the 1980s, and does it have any relevance in today's policy world as well? Uh, well, so the bell curve was written uh, by a gentleman named Charles Murray, uh, a longtime conservative at the American Enterprise Institute, who, who then, 20-some years later, wrote a book called Coming Apart right. that focused much more on the white working class uh, and was somewhat more sympathetic to them. Um, I think the bell curve uh, is a very flawed book and a very flawed analysis and, and does have racial overtones and very classist overtones. And yet, it shined a light on, on an important phenomenon that is more legitimate and that has led to a whole different area. So Murray's focus was on what we now call the achievement gap, the mm. test score gap. Right. I think he used that gap to argue that, number one, everything's driven by achievement Number two, in terms of earnings gaps. Right. Uh, number two, that it's all genetic, all those differences. And therefore, if it's all genetic, number three, no ameliorative policy will work, uh, that, that they're doomed to all fail. Uh, I think all those arguments are wrong. Number one, achievement's important, mm. education's important, but it's not the only thing sure. that matters. Right. Number two, the research evidence does not suggest that it's all genetic. Take these tests in high school. Mm. At that point, they've been heavily affected by access to high-quality education and, and things like that. Uh, and finally, even if you believe those, it doesn't logically follow at all mm. that efforts to raise people's earnings won't work. You can put word genetic, right? It, it just doesn't, that just doesn't follow logically. And there are training programs that can teach people with fairly low basic skills to, to, to do better in the job market. So all of that was wrong. And yet, just by shining a light on the test score gap and what we started to call achievement gap, people started to realize that, that that's a legitimate topic of conversation. Mm. Almost no one was talking about that before the 1990s. And I think the bell curve came out in 1994. By 1998, there was a book that Brookings published, an edited volume, edited by Christopher Jenks and Meredith Phillips, I believe. Mm. And Christopher Jenks is one of the most highly respected sociologists of his generation. And he said, you know what, the this, this, this skills gap is real, especially the achievement gap between whites and blacks. It, in fact, does happen. And there were other studies by very well-respected economists in the 1990s making that point that, in fact, a chunk of the education gap and a chunk of the earnings gap really is driven by this achievement gap. So you have the odd phenomenon that a very highly flawed and likely racist and classist book in the mid-90s actually had a positive effect on scholarship in the field. Interesting. And then when 20, 25 years later, he wrote his book on the white working class, Coming, up, coming Apart, yeah. and focusing on what we have learned is that a lot of the, a lot of the phenomena that we associated with the African-American community in the 70s and 80s and 90s, we started seeing more and more in the white working class mm. and white low income, uh, arguing that it's really not a racial phenomenon, mm. that maybe something else about uh, economics, economic right. opportunity, and interacting with behavioral norms, uh, things of that nature. But lots of people have noted that Maurice, and that when he started focusing on white people, his analysis became much more sympathetic. And I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Is that a coincidence or not? I don't know. 
So I want to talk about the 2016 election and how several counties and states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania have voted for Trump after decades for voting for Democratic officials. Some people might argue that voters in, in these three states differ than perhaps the other Trump voters and say somewhere from a southern state and that they voted for Trump based on economic anxiety and they tend to share the following characteristics. They tend to live in areas where manufacturing jobs were abundant, unions were strong, and where one can historically earn decent salary and a pension only with a high school degree. That is no longer the case. What economic policies can be put in place to restore growth and jobs in, in such regions? Well, so first of all, on, on your original point about yeah. there has been a debate among scholars about whether the vote for Trump in the industrial Midwest, as opposed to other regions, mm. is driven more by race and racial attitudes or more by economic anxiety. And, um, and I've read that literature carefully, and some people find empirically the evidence is, is actually a bit stronger on race, but my own view is that in those areas, it's very much an interaction of the two. Mm. And people, that no is race doubt, and economics. race and economics, that right. people no doubt for a long time have had racial fears, racial antagonisms. Uh, they were dormant for a long time. Uh, I think the combination of, of the economic decline of those regions, again, caused much more by technology and some by imports, mm. but also by a rise in immigrants. And, mostly Latino immigrants, you know, accepting a lot of low-wage employment, mm -hmm. as we talked about, right. that those factors allowed, and, and frankly, the rhetoric of Donald Trump and the open racism of Donald Trump, that it enabled a lot of those dormant racial antagonisms to become more allowable, less suppressed, uh, and, and to represent themselves. Now, again, there's some people think that it's all race. I don't believe that, mm. uh, especially in those areas. I don't believe it's a coincidence. You know, and sometimes they ask the questions on these surveys, are you anxious about your own economic? And, and people say, no, I'm mm, fine. Right. But people can still be upset at what they see around them mm. uh, in their region uh, and in their state. Yeah. Um, so I very much believe uh, that economics has been an important part of the story. Uh, and it's interesting because you have these people who voted twice for Barack Obama and mm, then right. shifted. And I think, I think what happened is that those regions took an enormous hit uh, during the Great Recession a right. decade ago. The regions and the industries recovered but yet a lot of these regions didn't recover. Mm. Uh, and, and in fact, what, ha what, what often happens in recessions is that employers use that time period to introduce new technology and automation that sure. further hurts right. these groups. So I think people were expecting a great recovery. Mm. Uh, and there was a recovery, but it wasn't great for mm. this population. Um, and, and their bitterness grew. And, and this is how it manifested itself. And right. I think part of the problem is that, that progressives, liberals, Democrats, we're not very sensitive to the anxiety uh, of a lot of those folks. Uh, and, and I was involved in the Hillary Clinton campaign, I, I will tell you. And I did craft sensible policies for her, I thought, and others did too, on, on how to raise wages, how to improve educational attainment. But she chose to run in all of her appearances on a very heavy race, immigration, right. women's issues, kind of that, that I think completely ignored these populations, and I thought that was an enormous error. Can I inject a follow-up question? Yeah. Would you talk a little bit about how to talk about these issues? Um, 
I think that for a lot of people, it, the economic issues are difficult to talk about, and basically, how do you speak about that? Okay, well, so, so let me turn to then the question of, okay, if, if we think this is a big problem, uh, what can we do about it? Yeah. Uh, and it's hard because when you look at depressed regions, quite frankly, it's hard to turn them around. Mm. Uh, and we can talk about job subsidies and wage right. subsidies and other targeted, but rural areas especially, almost every time someone gets some skills, they leave. Right. Uh, so it's almost like you always have a, a, a tear in the bottom of the mm. bag. And, um, I think in some of these metropolitan areas, it might be a little easier because they still have some right. benefits. Not everybody wants to leave. And I do support putting more money there into wage subsidies, right. infrastructure, things that will stimulate a little bit. Mm. But let me take, let me pivot a little bit and then talk about, okay, if the working class, and especially maybe the white working class, has been hurt mm. by all of these economic phenomena, uh, technologies, globalization, mm. but also declining minimum wages and unions, what does that suggest about policy solutions? And this is another area where economists uh, continue to debate. Mm. Uh, there is one point of view that said it's mostly about market forces like technology and globalization. Sure. Uh, another group says, no, it's much more about, and, and this is the more left-wing mm -hmm. part of the profession, no, it's much more about institutions and policies that we chose to implement mm. uh, with regards to making it harder for workers to unionize, not raising the minimum wage. Uh, as often, I tend to fall somewhere in between. I think mm -hmm. it's some combination of those so, two. But frankly, I lean a little more towards the market forces mm -hmm. because I think in, a, in, a, in, a, in an economy where technology and globalization give employers so many other options, mm -hmm. not just to automate, not just to relocate, not just to import, but to offshore, right. to outsource, to turn their workers mm -hmm. into either independent contractors or to contract them out to other companies in ways that uh, I, I think in that kind of world, it, it's much harder to unionize. It's much harder to have a high minimum wage. And I would like to see the federal minimum wage go up, but I, but I remain deeply skeptical of a $15 minimum wage yeah. because I think employers would react to that by eliminating jobs, by automating, right. by relocating, et cetera. So I think it's a combination of these market forces and institutions. But on the market forces side, there's a body of work that says we could have offset the market forces if educational attainment had improved more. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's some very important work by two professors at Harvard, Lawrence Katz and Claudia Golden. Uh, they wrote a book about a decade ago called The Race Between Education and Technology, where they say it is any negative effects on technology on workers, on a group of workers, and most economists believe technology in the long run is more of a positive than a negative. But it might require some workers who are directly displaced or competing with the technology to gain new skills. And, and they look at the early part of the 20th century when the sort of this, what they call the second industrial revolution, which involved automobiles and steel and, and electrical driven products, that raised the demand for workers with high school skills. And we responded by having a public high school movement that generated. And so there was an initial surge in inequality. And, mm. and then the development of all high school brought the inequality back down, mm. starting in the 30s and 40s. And then they say a very similar thing happened at the end of the 20th century raising the demand for college, but we were not nearly as successful at raising the supply of, of college workers. So I do believe that the market forces are exacerbated by a lack of educational attainment. But part of the problem, I think we've also defined education too narrowly, because everyone acts as if everybody needs a BA. Well, everybody's not going to get a BA. About a third of the country now gets BAs. And we send all these people to college who actually don't finish anything, because they're not equipped mm -hmm. 
with the skills to, to, to do post-secondary academic work. So I think we should focus out the skills more broadly. And when I think about the working class population. Are you thinking about something more like vocational training? Partly, right. partly, but I, I hesitate to call it exactly that. Mm -hmm. We have to be careful with that. But I think about people with a high school or less education mm -hmm. and who three or four decades ago thrived in production jobs, clerical mm -hmm. jobs, yeah. and those jobs have really either disappeared or now pay much less than they used to. Right. And there's been a lot of talk about, about the disappearance of the middle, mm. that those middle sectors have gone away mm. because of technology and a lesser extent globalization. Uh, and that's fed this thing that you, know, you either have to get a BA or you're gonna be a hamburger flipper, uh, which is false. Uh, what I've written is that there is a middle, what I call often a new middle, Mm. Uh, in places like healthcare, advanced manufacturing, IT, but that middle does require often some post-secondary education or some technical education. Mm. And we don't do a good job of equipping people with those skills. And, and I, think, I think those are skills in education that a lot of folks who used to be getting the production and clerical jobs could actually obtain. Mm. But we'd have to make a lot of changes in policies. Uh, and in community colleges, we'd have to put more funding in. We'd have to give the community colleges more incentive to reach out to, to industry in those areas. You know, we'd have to fundamentally change the, the nature. And right now, a lot of young people go to, 85% of, of, of young people who go to community college think they're just gonna stay there a short time and switch and get a, a BA. Mm -hmm. Only about 12 or 14% actually do that. Wow. There's an enormous mismatch between right. their expectations and what they accomplish. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we do have to build up much more uh, what you might call the vocational side. But I wanna hit another issue. Historically, in the United States, vocational education was based on a, on a form of tracking, mm -hmm. that we'd let white kids and middle class kids go in the academic track to college, but we'd track minority kids uh, and lower income kids into voc ed. Mm -hmm. That's not acceptable right. anymore. By the way, European countries do that, and they're mm -hmm. more comfortable, but they don't have this nasty history. Germany um, is a prominent example. Germany is the most prominent example, but mm -hmm. several other right. German-speaking countries and others. Mm -hmm. uh, and there, of course, you look at they're willing to track, mm. uh, and, and yet and the kids coming out of their more technical side have very good skills that mm. make them valuable employers. Whereas in our system, kids come out of high school and don't have any of the skills that employers, and that's why the employers therefore want to see a post-secondary credential. Right. So, but I, I think when we talk about, I, I, even, I don't even use the word vocational because it conjures up elements of this, of this passive tracking. Right. We now talk about career and technical education, mm. high quality career technical education, that, and that is not based on tracking, that is not based on either or, either your academic or your, or your career in tech, but in fact, try to bring down those barriers that someone, someone going to a high school taking AP classes in English could also take career classes. I believe everybody ought to learn something about the labor market, right. and people could learn about a profession mm -hmm. uh, in high school. And I, th I think that's how we, this has to be high quality, it has to not close doors to post-secondary education. Uh, and in fact, there have to be strong pathways, at least into community colleges, at least into two-year yeah. degrees, uh, as well as certificates, for credit as well as not-for-credit certificates. And that's a whole area where I think, I think we could do a lot better. And that would be a route for starting to offer more economic opportunity to the people that got so hurt mm. by technology and trade and things like that. But at the same time, we would also need another set of policies to complement that. Again, I, I think we should strengthen the rights of workers to collectively bargain. 
some people talk a lot about work councils where workers would have voice within the firm separate from collective bargaining. Mm -hmm. uh, I can understand why the unions feel threatened by that. I understand right. why the National Labor Relations Act did not allow for that. I'm, I'm now perhaps ready to allow for some of it, but then we have to strengthen the collective bargaining rights uh, at the same time. I favor strengthening the minimum wage at the federal level, but not all the way up to 15. Uh, I, I favor strengthening things like wage insurance, people who got displaced from good paying jobs by technology and trade and now only face lower wage jobs. The idea of wage insurance is to make up part of the difference if you accept a lower wage job. So if someone used to have a $20 an hour job and now they accept a $10 an hour job, maybe, maybe the federal government would make up half of the difference for some number of uh, and that would incentivize workers to take more of these available low-wage jobs without being hurt so badly by it. I favor expansions of the earned income tax credit, you know, which does a similar thing to wage insurance, but for low-income households rather than mm -hmm. displaced workers. So there's no one silver bullet that's going to solve all these problems. I, I favor a whole basket, a whole uh, agenda, starting with education and training, but certainly not ending there to try to improve uh, the economic prospects of poor people, working class people, people who are not gonna get a BA, but who can still get a set of skills that will improve their opportunities uh, in the labor market. You've mentioned the earned income tax credit and the minimum wage. Some people think about those two policies as a bit of competitors to each other. One is obviously more favored by businesses, that is the earned income tax credit, are they competitors, and why do businesses prefer the earned income tax credit as opposed to the minimum wage? Sometimes economists think of them as competitors because they work in very different ways. The earned income tax credit is a tax credit to workers, and we think of that as sort of affecting the supply side of the labor market to make low wage offers more attractive to them. Uh, the minimum wage is on the demand side. It mandates employers pay higher wages. So that's why employers like mm -hmm. the earned income tax credit, but in fact, taxpayers prefer the opposite. Because the earned income tax credit already costs American taxpayers 70 to $80 billion a year, the minimum wage is free. And that's why, in fact, even in the reddest of red states, if the supporters of higher minimum wages get a ballot initiative, it almost always wins to raise the minimum wage, even in red states. It doesn't cost them any. And the average American is not trained to worry about demand curves and, and loss of employment. But in fact, the reason economists tend to be at least a little more sympathetic, the earned income tax credit on its own raises employment, and the minimum wage reduces employment because it raises the price of labor that employers have to pay. Now, now there's always a debate about well, how big are those effects. Right. And a lot of people on the left argue that the effects on employment are either zero or very small. My reading of that literature is that the effects of the minimum wage are quite small. They're not zero. Mm -hmm. They're quite small in the short run, but they get bigger in the long run as firms have more time mm -hmm. to adjust how they do their business and, and that they especially get a lot bigger when you're talking about really large minimum wage increases. So an employer who sees the minimum wage go from, say, seven and a quarter to $9 an hour might say, oh, it's, it, I'm not going to worry about that. I can mm -hmm. just raise my prices a little bit. Right. You know, I don't have to undertake a big transformation of my sure. workplace, not worth it. But if it goes to 15, mm. all of a sudden, that's a really big change in my costs. Mm. I am going to automate. I am going to relocate. Right. And, and I worry very much about uh, uh, that the states mm -hmm. and cities that do this on their own, I worry about the fact that Washington, D.C., which has a lot of very unskilled, less educated workers, mm. are going to 15. Mm -hmm. And right across the river, Arlington, Virginia, the whole state of Virginia is staying at seven and a quarter. And I do feel that 
you know, it's not going to have a big impact quickly, but right. there will be a gradual trickle mm -hmm. of businesses over the river. Uh, and there's been some evidence that says it's not even that existing employers dramatically change their workplace. It's that the more labor-intensive firms, when they gradually shut down, they are replaced by either less labor-intensive mm -hmm. businesses. You know, sort of the Burger King is replacing the mom-and-pop restaurants. Right. And Burger King knows how to use less labor and will automate more over time, uh, or or those mom and pop places drift more across the river to Virginia. Uh, so, um, so I take seriously the potential threat to employment. Now, and there's another side. Mm -hmm. There's another reason why employers might like the earning income tax credit. Right. The earning income tax credit might actually make workers more comfortable accepting lower wage jobs, which might mean that. Employers have to don't have to pay them as much. Mm -hmm. Don't have to raise wages to accept. And there's there's been some evidence, some analysis of this by an economist named Jesse Rothstein at Berkeley, who did a study that he found that as much as 30 percent of all the dollars spent on earning a tax credit eventually end up in the employer's pocket. It's saving them money. They don't have to raise wages as much. So you can imagine why employers like it. But to me, that means that in fact these policies might be complementary that in fact a modest or moderate increase in the federal minimum wage, maybe up to $10 or even slowly up to 12, mm -hmm. combined with an expansion of the earned tax credit would allow less of those dollars to end up in the pockets of employers. Uh, and the combination of the two would be more powerful to American workers than just one or the other. So, so economists often do try to choose between them. I do tend to view them as more complementary than substitutable with one another. Great. I want to go a little bit back to economically depressed regions, regions. or states. Mm -hmm. During the Democratic primaries, the debates and several Democratic candidates have proposed strengthening unions and reestablishing some of the roles that have made unions stronger in the past. My question is, is, is it as simple as making unions stronger or have industries changed over time? And even if we restore unions and make them as strong as they were in the 50s, 60s, the, the equation is not as simple as it used to be before. Uh, the quick answer to your question is no, it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I would support some strengthening of, mm -hmm. of workers' right to collectively bargain. About a decade ago, there was a proposal that folks were pushing called the, the Employee Free Choice Act. Uh, it was sometimes called card check that would completely do away with representation elections, which right. is now the procedure that would say if 30% of the workers in, a, in, in an establishment sign a card, that's it. Then the whole establishment has to unionize. You could even make it 50% and the establishment would have to unionize. I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, a lot of people thought that workers could be intimidated into signing cards publicly. I, I favor a process where there are representation elections. I understand the argument that they have tilted so heavily in, in the employer's favor. Mm. Employers have so figured out how to dominate that, that we need some reforms in that area, uh, and, and I would support some of those reforms. Having said that, we have to be real. The, the percentage of the private sector that used to be unionized was about 35% in the mid-1950s. A little over a third. Now it's about six or six and a half percent. It's been a dramatic decline mm a non-stop decline through, through all kinds of political environments, uh, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, uh, through, through all kinds of, of uh, economic environments. Um, and I think it's very hard to reverse that trend. Mm -hmm. I'm pessimistic. Could we raise the rate of unionization? Probably. Mm -hmm. Could we bring it back to 35%? Very, very doubtful. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not just the laws and the interpretations of right. the laws uh, that have hurt unions. 
although I think that has played a role. Yeah. I also think that these forces of technology and globalization that have made it so easy for employers, so much easier than it used to be for employers to automate, relocate, offshore their work, or outsource their work, either to contractors or to other companies, all of those forces make it easy for employers to avoid unionizing workers. And, and the ability of employees, now economists have a name for this, we call it the elasticity of the demand curve. Right. And for anyone who's ever had a class in economics, I, I think these forces, uh, plus deregulation and some other policies, have basically made labor demand more elastic, which means that it is employers have more ability, more power to avoid higher wage workers, unless the higher wages are offset by higher productivity. Because if, if the high wages are offset by higher productivity, costs don't necessarily go up to the employer. Prices don't have to go up to the consumers. And by the way, it's the other thing that's changed, is that the internet and globalization mm -hmm. have, have made some product markets more competitive than used to be. Not all of them. Yeah. You know, and, and it's not that hard to find mm -hmm. you know, local area, you know, certainly like in the tech field, where a small number of companies completely dominate and now, and now we're starting to think about antitrust activities, right. at least exploring those in Microsoft and, and Google, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But a lot of industries did become more competitive because, you know, you, you, for instance, in, in the auto field, Americans used to only have to buy primarily from the big three, Ford, Chrysler, and GM. There's American Motors, uh, run by Mitt Romney's dad was the fourth one. Some people bought Volkswagens. But you, if, if unions raised the wages of auto workers and those got passed on at higher prices, American consumers had nowhere else to go. I think that was true in a lot of, and now they do. Starting in the 1970s, the, you know, the energy crisis, the high prices, well, led a lot of foreign companies, you know, led by Honda and Toyota and lots of other places, to be more competitive and more successful and make it a lot harder for Unions to just raise wages and let employers pass that on in higher prices doesn't work anymore. Now, part of the good news is that a lot of those companies started building plants here. Mm -hmm. uh, and Honda and Toyota and many other companies have plants in America right now. Right. Most of them are not unionized. Uh, and, and that's therefore another source. They pay good wages, right. uh, but, but not quite as high as, as the unionized plants in most cases. So, yeah, I, I think, I think it would be a very hard sell. So I, I think... While I would favor some efforts to strengthen collective bargaining rights, uh, we have to be realistic and, and say, we're never going to get back to the mid-50s. Now, this institution, now, the other thing, it's, some people say may, maybe 20th century unionism is not a great fit for private sector markets. Are there, is there a different kind of institution that still gives workers some voice, some protection, some input into compensation? And, and I think we need, you know, are, are worker councils that kind or are there other models we need to explore that? And the other thing, of course, is that, you know, where, where unions progressed a lot more since the 50s are mm -hmm. in the public sector. Okay. And some states don't allow it or barely allow it at all. Some states have been more liberal. That's where unionism has grown. Mm -hmm. But now, even in the public sector, you know, starting with Scott Walker's attack on, on right. public sector unions in Wisconsin, we see a lot of pushback there. Frankly, I think a lot of Americans have trouble viewing middle class unionized teachers as oppressed workers right. uh, and, and sometimes union rules that make it harder to get rid of incompetent teachers in some places. Having said that, it's also true, we saw in the last year that there are some states where, non-union states, where teachers are paid terribly poorly and a lot of Americans are sympathetic to those teachers getting, you know, to some of their walkouts yeah. uh, in some quite red states. So there again, I think there's a role for public sector unionism. Yeah. 
but they are facing pushback as well. Mm -hmm. It's likely not going to be a growing sector, but frankly, in, in those red states where, where teachers are paid so poorly, and, and other, other public sector employees, I have a lot of sympathy, and absent unions, I'm not sure what they're going to do to improve their bargaining situation. Now, this is an idea that's more popular amongst economists and less popular, perhaps, amongst the average uh, voter, and that is offering some sort of tax deduction or credit for talented workers to relocate from economically depressed regions to more prosperous regions. Why is this idea more popular amongst economists, and what are the potential limitations of such a Well, so economists see that kind of geographic relocation as the essential answer in the long run to regions that have been hurt by what we call economic shocks, mm -hmm. like, like the loss of these manufacturing markets for these places in the Midwest, you know, the, the Youngstown, Ohio, Allentown, mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, right. et cetera. And it has, historically, it has been a large part of the adjustment process that people move away. Um, but it works very sluggishly. So economists think, geez, if, if, if that's a good thing, but people are having trouble, people are facing either some barriers or costs to moving away, but if we think it's a good thing for them and for the economy, let's subsidize it. And interestingly, in the realm of, of poverty, there has long been a sense of uh, among poverty analysts that people who live in really poor neighborhoods, and we now have stronger evidence that, that a poor family in a really poor neighborhood mm. has worse opportunity than a poor family living in a better neighborhood, that maybe we should help those families move. And, and there was an experiment in the Clinton years called moving to opportunity was not about depressed manufacturing workers in the Midwest. It was about people living in really poor neighborhoods in big cities. Mm -hmm. It was an experiment to help people move to the better neighborhoods. And this was a random uh, It was a randomized trial. Right. Uh, and it was interesting because initially the evidence showed virtually no positive effects, no positive effects at all on the earnings of the adults right. who moved, sometimes positive effects on their mental health uh, because they felt more secure in these areas, but, but their kids seemed to do a lot better, and especially if they moved while the kids were less than 13 years old. And for adolescents and teenagers, maybe it was a little too late, uh, and, and, and sometimes the boys or the young men in these neighborhoods still got found ways to get in trouble. But for kids below the age of 13, the longer they spent in these higher income areas, the better they did in life. In Especially of, in the long run. In the long run, graduating right. high school, getting a college credential, right. their earnings, the effects were quite powerful. Yeah. So that indicated, yes, you know, maybe it's not a bad thing to subsidize mm -hmm. people to help them move. The downside is that <laughs> what's going to happen to the people they leave behind? Mm -hmm. And are those places uh, even going to be worse off mm -hmm. if we're helping? Uh, and, and some people say, look, we, we can't worry about that. You know, mm. if we have a chance to improve people's opportunities by helping them move, we, right. should, we should take that. And whether it's in the form of a tax credit or you know, maybe, it should, maybe it should be in the form of education about mm. where labor market opportunities are, I certainly support that. Uh, and th there was an idea about eight or ten years ago by a pair of economists who wrote a paper for the Hamilton Project mm. sort of saying maybe there ought to be a fund that people could borrow from at low interest rates to help them handle moving expenses, things mm -hmm. like that. Um, so I'm okay with those things, but it doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem then of these depressed regions. And a lot of people are not gonna move no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I, I think in the end, we have to have something for those people as well. As I sort of said, rural areas are really challenging, really, and, right. and it's hard to imagine anything that really has a lasting effect there. But some of these sort of smaller and medium-sized metro areas, which still have enough density to... What are examples of those? 
uh, some of the metro areas I've mentioned, like Youngstown, Ohio, right. Allentown, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. those you know, really mid-sized cities, small to mid-sized cities in larger regions, that there's still enough density there that you could perhaps help. And, and a lot of states have these economic development plans, and I mean, the worst kinds of economic development are states bidding against each other to lure these large employers and you we know, saw that been, recently with Amazon. That's right. That's right. That's too. that's almost the worst kind of economic right. development. Anything you could do to actually help build industry by building worker skills and things like, is, a, is a better way to, to do this. Mm -hmm. But supports for that kind of economic development, along with subsidizing some jobs, maybe turning more infrastructure, mm -hmm. I favor those two. So we, we could do, we don't have to choose one or the other. Right. You know, maybe a combination of the two. Yeah. You know, what we've, in, in recent years, if anything, uh, you know, it's always been true, and I wrote, I wrote a paper on this about 20 years ago. Mm. You know, college-educated folks look at the labor market from a national perspective. Right. And there's an expectation, especially if you left home to go to college mm. out of state, you have no problem going somewhere else. Right. Whereas high school or less workers tend to stay put. They think of the labor market purely in local mm -hmm. and regional ways. They have much stronger social ties, family ties, and those are relatively more important in their lives. Right. So it's always been true that less educated workers move less. Mm -hmm. And if anything, that phenomenon has, and, and of course there are exceptions to that, like the great migration out of the South yeah. of, of African Americans from the rural South to the urban North was, was a situation where things in their home region were so awful that the entire families moved, uh, and that was to their benefit mostly yeah. uh, in the long run. But there's just evidence that people are moving less, uh, and we probably have to do something for these distressed regions that at least have some hope, maybe for turning around and redeveloping. You know, people talk a lot about industries that use a lot of coding, right. where the industry doesn't have to be. I mean, anything if the business doesn't have to be located right there, mm -hmm. anything that can be done online, certainly you can imagine increasing those opportunities. For people in these sectors, or some of the newer trends in uh, towards what they call fulfillment centers in place of in place of, of urban retail, right. uh, you know, where 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 it's people are ordering things online and mm -hmm. they need to be shipped right. uh, through Amazon and other companies, uh, and UPS does the delivery or other, you know, those those warehouses are often can be located in somewhat more depressed mm -hmm. regions. Now, some people say, well, yeah, but in the long run, those are going to automate, too, and, and, that, and that drones and automated self-automated vehicles will yeah. be, will be uh, doing all that work. But in the meantime, that, that's another ray of hope, I think, for some folks. Some cities like Detroit have been successful in, in fostering a rising tech industry. Can such examples be replicated in cities that were economically struggling in the past? So, they, so the answer is yes. Uh, it can happen. Uh, there was a book written a few years ago called "The Smartest Places in the World" by a man who's not an economist, but who studies a lot of these examples of of, of declining industry mm. regions regenerating themselves. Right. Um, I don't think it can happen everywhere, mm -hmm. uh, and I think oftentimes there's an item there to build on that, with the right kind of support of economic development, the right education policies can be built on. Now. Some of the cities that have been most successful in redeveloping, cities like Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Chicago, mm -hmm. uh, and it took a long time to do that, but a lot of that progress was around what they call eds and meds, mm -hmm. combination of universities with really good university hospitals right. and healthcare systems. That combination of, of higher ed and, and, and large-scale uh, meds 
But if you don't have those, mm-hmm. so Cleveland and Pittsburgh had those kinds of places. Mm-hmm. Chicago had others. Chicago had, could regenerate finance right. and, and other things like that, as well as a, a, a burgeoning retail sector. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's harder if you don't have some comparative advantage or some building block already right. there. So, so there are places where it's happened. I think Dayton, Ohio, and there's, there's other places. And there are activities that can help that happen. Uh, I don't think it can happen everywhere. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, when the auto industry has automated, that has certainly brought down their costs, and it has raised employment for engineers and technicians, right. for machinists, mm-hmm. but not for really unskilled. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and that's the phenomenon of, of advanced manufacturing right. that I mentioned before, mm-hmm. where there are still very good jobs to be had, but not with only a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people have to be able to get those other post-secondary skills. Now, the other thing happening in Detroit that's quite mm-hmm. interesting is yeah. that there's been more of a kind of a retail urban renaissance. That's, that's really taken off, mm-hmm. you know, and it started with a few sort of lonely souls mm-hmm. moving back because the prices were so low. The cost of housing and land was so low in these really low-income neighborhoods. Right. And of course, those souls, you know, it, it, they had to worry about crime and other things. Mm-hmm. But at some point, people start trickling back and more people, and, and then it takes off, you know, it gets to some critical, Level. I don't know what that level is, and I don't. But it's happened in Detroit, and it's mm-hmm. happened in other downtown areas. Now, of course, the downside of that happening is gentrification, where eventually housing costs start going up, and that displaces poor people that have lived there a long time. I think, at least in the short term, it's a positive thing, mm-hmm. bringing back some industry, bringing back some economic vitality uh, to some of these depressed cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, can be a good thing. Well, Professor Holzer. Thanks for your time. Uh, Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more podcasts, please subscribe in your podcast app or SoundCloud. Keep an ear out for more interviews with geopolitics fellows, other professors, and policy professionals. For more from GPPR, check out gppreview.com, where you can find articles from our online team and information about our spring edition. Thank you.